The Lord be with you. How you wait says a lot about what it is that you're waiting for. So, for instance, this past Thursday, I woke up early, ate a very light breakfast, went out and participated in the 5K run for food, and then I came home, and I skipped lunch altogether, and I changed into some elegant but loose-fitting clothing because what I was awaiting for was to be stuffed with Thanksgiving dinner. But to say that's not the only way I know people await for Thanksgiving. I know some people who on Thanksgiving they sleep in late. They start off the day by scanning the newspaper ad section. Then they load up their car with folding chairs and blankets and energy drinks, and they drive out to stand in a parking lot in the cold. Because what they are awaiting for are Black Friday deals, and they want to be first in line when the stores open. So how you wait says a lot about what it is that you are waiting for. And what it is that we are waiting for is the theme of today, because today is the start of the church season called Advent. Advent means he comes. And on the most basic level, Advent is the season when we await the coming of Christ at Christmas. But on a much deeper level, Advent is the start of the church year because it invites us to ask ourselves, what is it we are awaiting when Christ comes into our lives? And so the first part of the Bible that we read to start the church year is not the beginning of Jesus' story. It's the end. It's not the foretelling of his birth. It's the foretelling of his return. Because if we know what it is we are waiting for, we know how to wait. And look, there's a lot of theories out there about what Jesus' second coming will look like. But everyone's pretty clear that when Christ comes, it will mean the end of the world as it is and the beginning of something new. But what that new is, is something that Americans love to imagine. Hollywood loves to create post-apocalyptic movies. The, po the apocalypse can come about because of Jesus or it can come about because of zombies or a nuclear holocaust. Whatever it is, Hollywood has made a movie about it. And in these post-apocalyptic films, the theme is always what comes after the end of the world is violence. It's always about the person who survives is the person who can store up the most guns and ammunitions and fight off the bad guys. And because of this, you see a lot of Americans who've bought into this mentality. Where I grew up in Eastern Oregon, we called them preppers. And these were folks who prepared for the end of the world as we knew it by stocking up on guns, stocking up on ammunitions, building a bunker so that they could fight off their neighbors when their neighbors came looking for supplies. Now, I feel like there's also some less serious versions of this. I notice um, I'll see sometimes Jeeps or Hummers, and they'll have a bumper sticker that says on the back, uh, Zombie Response Unit. And I always think to myself, how are you a zombie response unit? Is it if someone gets bit by a zombie, you've got the medical skills to heal them? No, right? They put that bumper sticker on their car because their response to a zombie is they're going to run it over. It's an idea that when the end of the world comes, what will be unleashed is violence. And if we want to prepare for that, we've got to be ready for a fight. Now, most people I know don't actually think about the end of the world this way and aren't preparing for it. But I know a lot of people who prepare for Thanksgiving this way. They prepare for Thanksgiving not by stocking up on food, but by stocking up on ammunition. Not literal ammunition, but emotional ammunition. 
as they get ready for Thanksgiving, they think about all the people who are going to be at the dinner there with them, and they start thinking, you know, so-and-so said this to me last year, and such-and-such a person never thanked me for that gift they gave them, and at my wedding, did you know what so-and-so did? And they start rehearsing all the hurts that they've experienced, and they start preparing all the things that they can say to these people. Well, if someone brings up their political views, I'm going to respond by saying this. Right? These people, they aren't preparing for a Thanksgiving feast. They're preparing for a Thanksgiving fight. But there's a second way that Americans love to think about the end of the world, and it, it comes out of a certain branch of Christianity. And it's a view of the end of the world in which the world ends with the rapture. And for those of you who aren't familiar with it, the rapture is this idea that when Jesus comes, all the good, righteous, faithful people will be teleported up into the clouds with Jesus, and they will leave this world behind as this world just descends into chaos. And they've actually made a whole bunch of movies and books about this. The Left Behind series is perhaps the most famous of them. And as a result, there are Christians who, believing that this world isn't going to be their problem anymore once Jesus comes, say, you know what? I don't have to worry about climate change. I don't have to worry about the political dysfunction in our society. All I have to worry about is being right with Jesus and not being tainted by the sin of the rest of secular society so that I got a golden ticket out of this place. The mess that's left, well, that's your all problem. And while, once again, I don't know many people who are actually preparing for the end of this world personally in this way, I do know plenty of people who prepare for Thanksgiving in this way, right? People who prepare for Thanksgiving, once again, not to have a feast, but to try to wait out their family members, right, who think of uh, schemes so that they don't have to talk to the people that they don't like. They can just get through the weekend. The people will get uh, go back into their cars and go back where they came from, and at last they can have their place to themselves again. And sometimes what this looks like is, hey, look, we're going to have food, and then we're all just going to watch football and not talk. Or maybe this year, instead of watching football, they'll watch football, World Cup fans out there. Sometimes it's we're all going to go see a movie, or sometimes it is. I think the reason people go uh, for those Black Friday sales is because they just want to leave the house after dinner on Thursday, and it's an excuse to go somewhere and not have to talk to people. Target, a few years back, actually ran ads explicitly saying this, saying, hey, look, is your family annoying you on Thanksgiving? There is free Wi-Fi in our parking lot. Tell them you have an errand to run at Target, and you can just hang out in your car and zone out on your phone. And if you think about both of these responses to the end of the world or to Thanksgiving, they are either fight or flight. And those responses make sense if you start with the assumption that what you are actually awaiting is to be hurt, is to be hurt by the people around you, to be hurt by foes either within or without. And it's an understandable worldview right now because if you turn on the TV – what you're going to hear about is impending World War III as Russia invades Ukraine. What you're going to hear about is a mass shooting every single week, making you wonder if when you go to the store next, you'll come back alive. Or what you hear about is the political division in our country getting so great that you think it's entirely possible that your Thanksgiving dinner could be the Fort Sumter of the next civil war. And so we find ourselves awaiting to be hurt by foes from within or from without. 
which is exactly what was going on when Isaiah was writing to the people in Jerusalem. So for the past few months, we've been following the story of the Jewish exiles in Babylon, but today I want you in your mind to step back about two centuries prior to that, to the year 701 before Christ. And at this point in history, the Babylonians aren't a threat, but the Assyrians are. The Assyrians were another empire centered in what today we think of as Syria. And the Assyrians had come south into the kingdom of Israel, which at this point had been divided into a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. And the Assyrians completely smash the northern kingdom. And so those people fleeing the Assyrians from the northern kingdom, they stream into the city of Jerusalem as refugees. And there the Assyrians lay siege to Jerusalem. And so you've got to imagine yourself in this city crowded with refugees, looking out over your walls as this army of foreigners surrounds your city on a hill. And to these people, the prophet Isaiah tells of a Messiah, tells of a day of salvation. And Isaiah says, when that day comes, guess what? You know all those people out there who are saying, let's go up that hill. Well, they'll say... Come, let us go up. But it won't be to level the city of Jerusalem. It will be to learn from the city of Jerusalem. And they will come up this hill and they will bring their swords and they will bring their spears, but not for war. For they will turn those swords into plowshares and those spears into pruning hooks. They will come up here to farm, to feast with us. What Isaiah is telling the people of Jerusalem is that when the Messiah comes, it won't be to fight or to lead a flight. It will be to befriend. Isaiah is saying that those people out there that you are afraid of at this very moment, someday you're going to have them over for dinner. That's what Isaiah is telling us. And If you look in the New Testament at what Jesus actually will do when Jesus returns, it lines up with it. Because yes, Jesus says that he's coming like a thief in the night and we don't know when. And and that some people will be taken up when he arrives. But if you look at 1 Thessalonians, what it describes of those people being taken is that they're going to be taken up from all the four corners of the world to meet Jesus in the clouds, but not to leave this earth, but to descend upon this earth. Jesus gathers people from the four corners of the earth to meet him in the clouds because Jesus wants a parade as he comes down to earth. We start our worship services in the season of Advent with a procession where the whole choir in their robes follows singing uh, behind the cross. That is what Jesus is telling us will happen, that he will gather us together and we will be his choir processing behind him as he leads this triumphant parade back down to earth. The book of Revelations describes this as a new Jerusalem descending from heaven to land here on earth where God will dwell among God's people. Jesus is coming. And yes, Jesus is coming will shake this earth to its foundation. The world as we know it will pass away. 
Revelation describes a new heaven and a new earth, but those new heaven and new earth, they don't appear out of nowhere. The old world is not just a race. That's what Isaiah is trying to tell us when Isaiah says, hey, when the Messiah comes and all these nations will stream to Jerusalem, God will judge between nations and arbitrate between peoples. Isaiah is telling us, look, the divisions and differences between people that exist in our world now, in this new world, they will continue to exist, but God will find a way to navigate them so that we can all be together in our differences. Isaiah is telling us that the old world will be transformed into the new world when Isaiah says that in this new world, People will still have the swords and the spears of their old animosity, but they will be transformed into implements for farming. Jesus is coming, yes, and Jesus will come in a way that breaks this world in ways that we can't yet imagine. But Jesus comes to break the world so that Jesus can remake the world into something new and wonderful. And so what scripture tells us is Jesus' coming is the coming of friends to celebrate a potluck. That's the second coming which we await. And so the question becomes, how do we prepare for such a post-apocalyptic reality? Because Hollywood's given us no shortage of movies telling us how we prepare for a post-apocalyptic war. But how do we prepare for a post-apocalyptic peace, a post-apocalyptic feast with friends that Christ has brought to heal? Well, there is actually one nation that I know of that's preparing for such a reality, and I'm proud to say it's a historically Lutheran nation, Norway. The Norwegians have built on an island in the Arctic Circle a massive storage facility, not for weapons, but for seeds, it's called the, Sol the Solvard Global Seed Storage Facility. And it currently stores over one million variety, varieties of seeds for edible plants. And the idea is someday the seeds that our farmers use to grow the food that we eat may have something happen to them. They could be destroyed in a massive fire or a nuclear fallout. Who knows what will happen? But say the world as we know it is destroyed and with it all the seeds that we use to feed the world. When that day comes, the Norwegians are prepared with seeds to plant with those plowshares and pruning hooks so that we can feed the world with the uh, so that we can feed the world and share the feast that Christ is bringing us. Now, that's what it might look like on a, on a national level to prepare for a post-apocalyptic peace. But what might it look like on a personal level? Now, here's the thing. If we are trying to imagine what it is to await for Christ to show up in our lives with a whole bunch of friends who've come to learn and share food with us, well, there's good news. And the good news is that most of us spent the last week preparing for just such a scenario. Yes, 
Thanksgiving, at its best, is not preparing to stuff ourselves with food. It's not preparing to uh, stuff our shopping cart with deals. It is preparing to invite people over to share food and love and learning. And so... I've got five steps based on how we prepare for Thanksgiving to help you prepare for Christ coming with friends for a feast. All right? Based on Isaiah chapter 2. Okay. So step one, invite people. Yeah? It seems simple, but right? Isaiah uh, describes the, the people of all the world saying, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Yeah? To say, if we want to have a feast to celebrate with people, well, first we've got to invite people over. And in many ways, this is the hardest step, right? Because there's a lot of people we don't want to invite. So-and-so hurt me years ago. I don't want to be them, be with them again. Or I've never met so-and-so. You want me to invite them over? That's not how I want to spend the holiday, making an awkward conversation with someone who's new. But if you feel that way about Thanksgiving, imagine how the people of Jerusalem felt when Isaiah said, hey, you know those guys outside our, our walls with spears and swords who are trying to kill us? When the Messiah comes, he's going to invite him in for dinner. Yeah. But here's the truth. The best parties are the parties in which everyone's not the same, but in fact, there's a variety of perspectives and backgrounds and interests. And the, the variety inspires the people who are present and animates them. If we want to prepare for the kingdom of God, we have to invite people into our lives who are different from us because, newsflash, the kingdom of God will be filled with people of every nation. And every language, every culture, every generation will all be united together in Christ. That's what we're awaiting for. All right. So first off, we've got to invite people. Second of all, and I know this is what everyone who hosted Thanksgiving did this past week. The second thing we do when we prepare to invite people over is clean house. Yeah? Now, cleaning house on a spiritual level means getting right with God. When the people in Isaiah 2 say, you know, come, let us go up to the house of the Lord, they say, so that he may teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. Right? They want to know how to get right with God. They want to know how to clean house. Jesus tells us that all of God's law are summed up with love God and love your neighbor. And so as we invite people into our lives, it is worth spending time saying, hey, how am I doing those two things? Are there things that are distracting me from doing them? When we invite people over for Thanksgiving dinner, are we fully present with them or are we constantly checking our phone because we think work is more important or because we think checking on the scores of the game is more important? Are we sharing ourselves fully with that person who is our guest or are we so busy putting on a performance of a meal that we don't have time to actually talk with them right to say we got a clean house we got to make sure that our heart is where it's supposed to be when we invite people over the third thing is you got to ask about needs now the scripture describes it this way, right? That God is going to judge between nations and arbitrate between peoples. And it's a recognition that people will be different. 
when Jesus comes. And those differences will remain, and Jesus will find a way for us to all work together. But for most of us, at Thanksgiving... This shows up in a very different way, right? There's a joke about how Thanksgiving these days you got to uh, satisfy people who are dairy-free and gluten-free and who are vegetarian, who are, you know, uh, on a keto diet. And as frustrating as that might be for us as we're trying to plan a menu, we still go through the work of checking on people. Saying, hey, do you have dietary restrictions? Do you have any special needs? Because at the end of the day, we know the point of Thanksgiving is not actually the menu. It's the people. And so even though I may not get to make the dish that I want to eat, or I maybe have to make an additional dish so that someone else has something to eat, we make it work. And that's what we have to do in all of our society. Chico is developing as a city, and, and maybe I want it to develop in this way, and you want it to develop in that way. If we want to prepare for Christ's coming, we learn to await by asking about each other's needs and finding ways in which we can all get what we want. The fourth thing that we do is we stockpile hope instead of hurt. Scripture describes this as turning spears into pruning hooks and swords into plowshares. But what it is at the end of the day is saying, are we putting our energy and attention into preparing to hurt each other or in preparing to help each other? I talked earlier about how some people prepare for Thanksgiving by preparing for a fight, by rehearsing past wrongs and, and practicing witty comeback lines. It's an amazing thing. If you have been hurt by someone, the amount of attention that you pay to that person's interactions with you, looking for ways in which perhaps that person is trying to hurt you or slight you again, we can make mountains out of molehills, right? Someone says to you, well, pass the butter. And we think to ourselves, why do they want me to pass the butter? Is it, is it because they think I'm soft or because they think I'm slimy and greasy or, or maybe – the person doesn't ask you to pass the butter, and they ask the person next to you to pass the butter. And you think, why didn't they ask me to pass the butter? Am I not good enough to touch their butter? We can use our attention to someone to find ways in which to be offended by them. Or we can use our attention for someone to find ways in which to be inspired by them. We can, instead of rehearsing past wrongs before we see someone, we can rehearse past joys, remembering why it is we'd want to invite them in the first place. When was our relationship good? When has this person loved and cared for me? We can use our attention to that person to try to notice when they say something that we actually agree with. We can use our attention to pay attention and see if maybe they're actually reaching out to us with some gesture of goodwill. We can choose to stockpile not our hurt, but our hope for a better relationship. And finally, the fifth thing that we do on Thanksgiving to make it a great meal is that we work together to make the meal. We make the meal together. Isaiah describes 
all these nations of the world coming together in Jerusalem, and ends it by saying, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Doesn't say, hey, let me walk in the light of the Lord, but let us walk in the light of the Lord together. The best meals are not meals in which one person has done all the work to make all the food and clean all the dishes. The best meals are, are ones in which everyone contributes, not just because the food is fabulous, getting to sample everyone's culinary skills, but because the conversation and the connection is profound when you work together. When you share a common cause and a common goal, that makes for a joyous Thanksgiving feast and it makes for a joyous preparation for Christ's return. When we recognize that each and every person has gifts to contribute and we find ways to share them with each other and work to bring forth the kingdom of God. As I look back on these five ways that we can await the coming of Christ that we can invite people, that we can clean house, that we can ask about needs, that we can stockpile hope instead of hurt, that we can make the meal together. I realize that there is actually a genre of films that tells us how to prepare in this way. It's not horror films. It's Hallmark films. right? Hallmark films, they have conflicts. They have hurts and disappointments and people whose worlds crumble around them. But in those films, resolution comes through not stockpiling weapons, but honest conversations. Those films always end not with an explosion, but with a celebration. And because of that, people love watching Hallmark films, even though, if we're honest, they are not quality films. But at the end of the day, we like knowing how the movie's going to end. We know the movie is going to end with love victorious. And because of that, even in the midst of all the conflict and the drama and the hurt along the way, we still find comfort, joy, and peace because we know it ends with love. And that is true with Christ's story as well. It is true with our story. We start the beginning of the church year with the end by saying, with all the pain and sorrow and troubles that we will encounter along the way, this story ends not being surrounded by foes who hurt us, but Christ arriving with friends to heal us. Our story ends with a parade and with a potluck. That's how our story ends. And so the question is, how will we await that ending? Now, this past Thanksgiving, I don't know how it went for you, but I invite you to consider, how did you await your Thanksgiving? And what does how you awaited for that Thanksgiving say about what you expected that Thanksgiving to be like? How did how you waited point to what you are waiting for? And if you didn't like the answer that you reflected on just now. Well, good news. In four weeks, you'll have another shot. 
Christmas is coming soon. You can gather with friends and family once more. But here's the thing. Jesus tells us no one knows when his second coming will arrive. It could be before the end of this sermon or it could be in thousands of years yet to come. But he is coming. And the question is, how will we await? So what is it you are waiting for? May the way that we await show the world who it is that we are waiting for. Amen.